Good evening. Good evening, Asia. Good afternoon, Europe and Africa. Good morning to the US. Hope you are joining us in Latin America. Uh, welcome back after the summer break, uh, or at least for those on the northern hem hemisphere. I'm uh, Eric Bergloff. I'm the chief economist of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIB. Until the beginning of September 1st, um, or till beginning of September, I was director of the Institute of Global Affairs here at the LSE School of Public Policy. So today's webinar is a kickoff for a series of webinars that the Institute of Global Affairs, LSE School of Public Policy, and the Center for Economic Policy Research organized under the rubric, the Global Commons Room. Here we will discuss global challenges and how research can generate progress on these challenges. And we do so in the shadow of and in the understanding that we must use the eventual recovery from the pandemic to rebuild better. For the LSE, this event is also part of a new initiative, the Marion Forum, where LSE faculty and students engage with policymakers uh, and with the business community and civil society in advance and emerging economies on specific challenges. But this was not enough. Uh, the event is also part of LSE's shaping the post-COVID world series that will lead up to the annual LSE festival in February. For those uh, of you on Twitter, uh, the hashtag for today's event is LSE COVID-19. It is also being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast uh, later on. The global challenge for today's webinar is innovation and inclusive growth. How can we become more efficient in how we use resources and more inclusive in the way we provide opportunities for people to contribute to and benefit from prosperity. Innovation is about how we imitate and adapt ideas and of course about how we create genuinely new products, processes and, and new ways of organizing ourselves. Innovation generates productivity and productivity determines long-term growth. How these productive opportunities are spread and how the returns from these opportunities are also spread determines the income uh, distribution. We are discussing innovation and inclusive growth in a year when we really have no growth. In fact, most of those economies will contract significantly. The IMF has revised the options downwards for countries it covers. Moreover, there is every indication that the economic and social impacts of the pandemic are not distributed equally across and within countries. This high-level panel looks at the pandemic as an opportunity to promote inclusive growth and innovation in a more sustainable way. In particular, we will examine the role of the emerging and developing uh, world in creating new sources of growth and the role leadership plays in achieving transformation. Finding new sources and ensuring that the most vulnerable in society are protected are critical objectives as we cope with COVID-19 and start to build back the world economy. We have a great panel today with possibly the two most Articulate policymakers from the advanced economies and the emerging world, former UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown and Senior Minister Thurman Jamugaratnam. And they, they will discuss uh, these issues with us. And we'll also have uh, uh, the Lord David Sainsbury, whose uh, book Windows Opportunity will provide some uh, background to the discussion uh, today. We want to get different perspectives on how to strengthen innovation and achieve more inclusive growth. We are very pleased to have Lord Sainsbury here 
I'm also honored to welcome Professor Mariana Mazzucato and Professor Ricardo Crescenzi. I will have a, a chance to say a bit more about them uh, as we invite them to take the floor. Before we start, as usual, there will be a chance for you to put uh, your questions later on. We have an extraordinarily large audience today, and we have not been able to accommodate everyone in the Zoom call. Instead, we can offer live streaming on Facebook, and to submit your questions in the Zoom call, please use the Q&A feature uh, at the bottom of your screen. On Facebook, you can use the comment function, and we'll try to uh, pick up those questions as well. <coughs> we'll pause as many as we can. We'll also have a short polling uh, today um, before uh, the Q&A. But when you pose questions, please let us know your name and affiliation. And we are particularly keen to hear from students and, of course, from alumni and incoming students, uh, if there are such students on this call. And I'm going to do my best to ensure that there is uh, time for, for questions. But I'm now uh, delighted to hand over to uh, Prime Minister <laughs> Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown is the United Nations Special Envoy for Global Education and former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He's chair of the Global Strategic Infrastructure Initiative of the World Economic Forum, and he has a number of other uh, positions. He served, uh, of course, in the UK between 2007 and 2010 as Prime Minister. Mr. Prime Minister, the floor is yours. I understand also that you will introduce Lord Sainsbury. Please. Eric, can I say thank you for your leadership? Thank you for creating the Mariam Forum, which is one example of innovation by being online at the moment. Uh, and thank you uh, and congratulations on your appointment to the AIIB. It's a very important uh, job that you're going to be doing. And I want to thank you also for bringing together, uh, and I'm not including me in this, uh, four of the world experts on how innovation can influence the economy. Uh, we are privileged to have Mariana, who has done so much in shaping the European uh, Innovation Programme, uh, Ricardo, who's one of the great rising stars at the LSE. And, and I want to say something uh, particularly about the contribution that Thurman and David have made uh, to innovation and are still making in the works that they are involved in. I think it's true to say that no one has done more in recent years to make Singapore the innovation capital of the world uh, than Thurman. You know, its GDP per head is four times that of China. Uh, it's obviously bigger than that of European countries, bigger than that of America. And the emphasis that Singapore has placed on innovation is in no small part due uh, to the excellent ministerial positions that have been held by Thurman over many years and now is senior minister. He chaired the eminent persons group to review the future of global institution. He chairs with me as he did yesterday, the Global Forum on Education. Uh, and I know we will benefit from Thurman's description of emerging stronger, which is the Singapore way out of this uh, crisis, uh, where they have emphasized the importance uh, of innovation as the route forward. And I also want to say something about uh, David Sainsbury. There is no science and innovation minister that has made such an impact as David did in his 10 years in government. And I'm not just saying that. Every previous science and innovation minister will say that about the huge contribution that David uh, has made. He was author of a report called uh, Race to the Top, which uh, set out some of the challenges that we're going to talk about today a few years ago, and it reinforced our approach to dealing with the post-crisis situation in 2008, 9, and 10. And of course, he's now published what I think is uh, a monumental work of, uh, of, 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 of writing, Windows of Opportunity. 
and Windows of Opportunity, you will find, and I hope you will read it on and Kindle, uh, goes through economic theory about innovation and what its role in the economy is from the time of Adam Smith. And then in its second section, it has the practical proposals. I think you'll come on today in the discussion uh, where we can improve uh, sponsorship and support for science and innovation, where we can help with training and skills and have an inclusive economy uh, and where the future of countries like uh, Britain can be transformed by recognizing uh, the power uh, of uh, innovation uh, and science uh, to the development of our economy. Now, David uh, uh, has uh, also, I think, got something to say about how we respond to the recession, because it is by harnessing the power of innovation and science that we will make a difference not only to what is happening to our health uh, system, uh, but also what's happening to all the major industries in our economy. And we are seeing so many changes at the moment that are innovative from online to many other changes in the, the application of science that I think we have got to seriously consider this. I am uh, heading an alliance for full employment and emphasizing the policies that Britain needs uh, to come out of this uh, crisis. And one of them I'm absolutely sure about is we've got to support those innovative companies uh, that uh, perhaps uh, uh, cannot both pay back their loans at the same time as mount the new investment that's needed. Uh, and of course, we have to support those uh, universities and colleges and research institutes that are going to create the science and innovation uh, of, of tomorrow. David focuses, and, and again, I, I would urge you to read what he says, on the productivity uh, problem that really has been Britain's Achilles heel and many other countries' Achilles heel for the last uh, 50 years. Uh, the product, productivity problem would be so big that it used to be said in the 1960s, we managed decline. In the 1970s, we mismanaged decline. And then in the 1980s, with neoliberalism, uh, we declined to manage uh, at all. And so I think that what David will show us today, and this is how I want to introduce him and ask him to speak and leave more time for him to develop his remarks, uh, what we will find uh, with David is as Chancellor of uh, uh, Cambridge University, uh, as obviously someone who has headed a major firm, a top firm in the United Kingdom, and as a former minister, he brings it with, with him the expertise and experience uh, and the academic insight that can allow us to frame what I think is a new wave of policies uh, for science and innovation in the future. And without further ado, I think uh, we ought to give David the chance to present the results of his survey and his work, uh, and then we can comment on it in the panel. Uh, over to you, David, and thank you for the work that you continue to do. Uh, Gordon, thank you very much uh, for that introduction. Um, and can I say, first of all, that um, it was an enormous uh, pleasure for me uh, to work under you when you were the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, not least because you enormously helped me uh, in terms of giving more money to science. And um, as I sometimes think, the major job of the science minister is to get money for science. Um, that did a lot for my uh, prestige. Um, I think um, we are today um, in the UK faced um, with a very alarming situation. Uh, in between uh, the period 2010 and 2019, uh, we had a very poor uh, record of growth uh, with an annualized rate of growth of output per hour averaging just 0.4%. And of course, the pandemic 
has made the situation uh, much worse. At the same time, uh, the economists who advise the government um, have not been able to explain uh, why our rate of growth has been so low, uh, referring to it as a productivity puzzle. And as a result, they've not been in a position uh, to advise the government on what they should do to put the UK back on a path of economic growth. In fact, in recent weeks, the government has put uh, £34 million pounds, uh, into a productivity institute to try and find out why uh, the UK has a low rate of economic growth. Uh, what I want to say briefly today is if the government had spent £20 pounds, uh, on buying my book on Amazon, uh, they would have found there both an explanation uh, of why our growth rate has been low and what the government needs to do to speed it up. And if, if that was too expensive, there's a very good Kindle edition uh, as well. Before I explain why the growth rate of the UK has been for, poor, uh, there's one technical issue which I think it's important to understand. When neoclassical economists talk about the productivity of the economy, they're not talking about production efficiency, as most people think. They're not talking about the number of man-hours used to produce the economy's output. What they're talking about uh, uh, is the value-added power of firms in the economy, inflation-adjusted. This is important because the value-added power of a firm depends not only on its production efficiency, but also on the innovation and competitive advantage in the marketplace it has and therefore the price it can charge its customers. And we need to face up to the fact that if too many firms in a country lose their competitive advantage in the global economy because of a lack of innovation, a country can find itself faced with a future of negative growth rates. There's, there's no economic law which says growth has only can go up. It can also go down if you lose competitiveness in the global economy. So why can't economists explain our slow rate of growth? I think the answer is they can't, because in most cases, their thinking is based on a mathematical model of growth, which is based, has based into it three assumptions which are completely unrealistic. They are that the capabilities of firms doesn't, don't matter, and that we can think in terms of the representative firm, all firms being the same, that firms are managed by rational managers and that consequently entrepreneurs play no part and that we're dealing with perfectly competitive markets where everyone is selling the same product at the same price. Now in such a market, in such a world, the only variable left is of course the overall efficiency of the market. And as a result, it's assumed that the value added per hour of all sectors is the same. So economists only really look at the, at the, the economy uh, in its total. In my book, on the other hand, I put forward a, what I've called a production capability theory of economic growth, which is based on the idea that the value added per hour of the firms in the different sectors of the economy varies because it reflects the performance of the firms in terms of innovation and competitive advantage.
And at this point, I can just have the, my one and only uh, slide. Uh, if we look at the performance of the different, yeah, I think people got that. Uh, if, we, if we look at the performance of the different sectors of the economy during the period 2000 and 2019, uh, as shown on this chart, it's clearly the case that the value added of the major sectors of the economy uh, vary. The chart also shows that the poor growth rate of the economy can be explained by what happened in the different sectors of the economy and the shift of economic activity between them. What the data in the chart shows is that the slow growth rate of the economy was due to the performance of three major sectors of the economy, manufacturing, financial services, and oil and gas, and also a shift in economic activity from high-value-added sectors to low-value-added sectors, as shown by a negative between effect of minus 2.4%. In the case of manufacturing, it suffered a fall in uh, gross value added uh, from £55.73 to £52.20, and also saw a fall in its percentage share of total GVA from 10.64% to 9.65%. This was caused by firms in foreign countries rapidly innovating and increasing the competitive advantage of their manufacturing industries faster than our manufacturing industries were doing. In the case of financial services, which is one of the UK's high-value-added services, it's not in fact on this chart, so you'll have to just take the words uh, that I'm giving you. The GVA per hour grew, in fact, by 3.45%, between 2010 and 2019. But as a percentage of the country's total GVA, it fell from 5.44% to 3.99%. If we look at the average revenues of the uh, listed top four uh, uh, banks, they fell by 17% between 2010 and 2019 as lower aggregate demand in the economy resulted in less demand for financial services. In addition, many of the financial products which had flourished in the boom conditions leading up to the financial crash were seen to have very little economic value uh, after the crash also. Finally, and this is perhaps the most, um, uh, I think, interesting figure in the whole analysis, uh, the oil and gas sector saw a fall in GVA per hour from a massive £681 per hour to £545 GVA per hour, while its percentage share of the country's GVA fell from 1.51% to 0.72%. The latter figure was due to a fall in GVA per hour and a fall in output by a quarter from the end of 2010 to the end of 2019. And if we look ahead, output is predicted to fall further in the future. And downward pressure on the oil price because of the growth of renewable energy and the relatively uncompetitive nature of the sector due to higher extraction costs means that there's little chance of the sector stimulating UK productivity in the future.
It is, I think, an extraordinary commentary uh, on economics and economists that in view, in the, in, in view of the importance of the for the national growth figures, that so little attention has been paid by economists to the impact that North Sea oil has uh, on our growth rate. Now, the reason why it's important to understand these basic facts about the UK economy is that they show the scale of the challenge we face and they also make it clear that the only way we're going to be able to increase our economic growth is by increasing the competitiveness and the value-added power of both our high-value-added services and our manufacturing industry. This, in turn, will require the government to take forward new policies, I believe, in four key areas. These are technical education, the re re regional levelling-up agenda, corporate governance, and R&D and innovation. In the case of technical education and R&D and innovation, uh, the government is already taking action, but in the other two areas, policies need to be developed. I should say that doesn't, I'm not uh, saying necessarily that the government policies are right, but certainly uh, they're right, I think, in the area of technical education. Uh, we need to see more about R&D and innovation. And in the other two areas, as I've said, uh, policies need to be developed. I also want to make the point that the production capability theory of economic growth, which I've outlined in my book, uh, has implications for inclusive growth and the regional levelling up agenda of the government. There are, as we know, substantial regional differences uh, in output in the UK. But as the work for the Centre for Cities has shown, this divide is not simply due to geography. It's not due to the workers in the north working less hard than in the south or being less efficient. Nor is it the case that all cities in the north are less prosperous than those in the south. It is, on contrary, due to the ability of cities in different parts of the country to respond to economic change and reinvent themselves. Government policies which have explicitly attempted to, re re to reduce the north-south divide and which can be traced back to the 1930s, have not been effective because the majority of interventions have tended to reinforce the existing industrial structure by supporting low-knowledge routine activities to reduce unemployment, as opposed to supporting the reinvention of cities by increasing the number of knowledge-intensive businesses in them. As a result, in many cities in the north, Jobs in declining industries have been replaced by low-skill routing jobs, which are vulnerable to foreign competition and technological change. What we've seen is cotton mills and dockyards being replaced by call centers and distribution sheds, which have had stayed for a short period and then moved on to where they can find cheaper places to be. The leveling up of the poorer regions of the country, I therefore believe, will require the government to devolve more powers in the areas of skills and transports to the mayoral combined authorities and also increase and improve the Strength in Places Fund so that it can support the growth of more high-value-added clusters and jobs in the low-income regions of the country. If all this sounds a bit dry and boring, I should say that my book also contains a lot of fascinating growth stories which range from Henry VII's industrial policies which created the woolen cloth industry 
uh, which was the basis of England's wealth in the 16th and 17th centuries, to the extraordinary story of Boston in the USA, uh, which has reinvented itself many times, uh, and importantly, to the development of the worldwide wine industry uh, in recent decades. Uh, in this last example, for instance, you will find the answer to such important questions as why today one can buy excellent cheap white wine from Chile, where 40 years ago uh, most people could bought all their wine uh, from France and Italy. Finally, can I say how delighted I am for two reasons to be followed in this discussion by the senior minister from Singapore. Personally, as Gordon has pointed out, Singapore has demonstrated how innovation, and I think what is essentially a production capability theory of economic growth, can be, can be used to take a small island state from an average GDP per capita of $427 in 1960 to a GDP per capita in international dollars of $44,000 in 2017, the fourth highest in the world behind only Gata, Macau, and Luxembourg. And I don't consider any of those uh, to be a serious kind of industrial uh, countries. So it really is the most impressive and richest industrial country in the world. Secondly, Singapore, in response to the COVID-19 crisis, announced a package of measures to help business overcome the immediate challenges while helping them to emerge stronger. The latter, for example, includes consulting services to support small and medium-sized enterprises uh, to deepen and extend their presence overseas and a program to support SMEs going digital. I think uh, that one of the most remarkable features of Singapore is that in all policy areas, it seeks to learn from other countries. Today, when it comes to responding to the current economic crisis, I think we would do well to learn from them, which means putting innovation and competitive advantage to the center of our economic policies as we seek to recover from COVID-19. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, I think we have got plenty of material to, to discuss. You have already been introduced twice, uh, Thurman Shanmugaratnam. You, uh, people have emphasized you, your contribution in Singapore. Maybe we should also mention your role as a, a voice for the emerging world. Of course, Singapore now is, as we saw, a rich country, but it has made this journey in a very short period of time and has it's become an example for many how you can um, develop. And I had a pleasure working for you um, during the G20 Eminent Persons Group on Global Financial Governance. So I know that you're not only a politician, you're also a, a deep thinker. And most importantly, you are also an LSE alumnus. So please, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Eric. And uh, thanks a lot, uh, Gordon and uh, Lord Sainsbury for uh, inviting me. Um, and thank you for uh, putting me uh, before Mariana so that I still have something to say. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I should start off by saying that um, you know, I'll, I'll reflect on some of the uh, lessons we're learning in Singapore um, uh, as a team. Uh, one of the interesting things uh, about the way we operate in Singapore, um, and you know, this may sound uh, 
trite, but it's extremely important. Uh, we really work as a team in government. I mean, I just came a short while ago out of a meeting with eight ministers and civil servants of different ranks, uh, just talking about policies for social resilience. Um, not a not a policy uh, uh, realm for one ministry or even two, but eight ministers, Chris, cutting across a whole range of traditional portfolios. And we do that all the time. We do that in our cabinet meetings. We do that before our cabinet meetings. We do that all the time. And I just wanted to mention that, that, you know, I personally, even at this stage, am continually learning from my younger colleagues and we keep, keep influencing each other and pushing each other to do a little more and to think a little more. Um, I found uh, Lord Sainsbury's book extremely refreshing. And I say this as a, both a policymaker and as an economist. I found it extremely refreshing um, for its, uh, its real-world take on what it takes to be competitive, what it takes to spur innovation and to avoid um, self-reinforcing declines, um, uh, whether on a city scale or regional scale. Uh, and also what it takes to have an engine of inclusive growth, not just um, uh, producing more winners, but bringing everyone along. And I, I found it extremely refreshing. And if I could just start with a fairly basic observation that comes out of, of the book that you've published. Um, and that is that uh, when we reflect on experience over the last 50, 60 years, uh, one fairly obvious conclusion is that when we think about the role of government, uh, we've, and I'm, I'm here talking about the role of government in market-oriented systems, um, we've got to avoid uh, one end or the other of the spectrum of possibilities. At one end, you've basically leave innovation and growth to the free market. And the role of government is to ensure the free market operates. Um, there was a period of time uh, corresponding to what Gordon described as a period of mismanaged uh, productivity growth, uh, where that was, that was the philosophy of government. It hasn't worked very well uh, anywhere in the world. At the other end of the spectrum, and there was, a, there was a long history behind this in both the emerging world as well as many parts of the advanced world, was a strategy of attempting to pick winners. And I, I don't mean that in, I, I mean that in, in, a, uh, in, in a, not in a disparaging way, because uh, it, it was a very serious strategy to pick new technologies, not necessarily to favor individual firms, but to pick new technologies even to pick certain products of the future and then um, uh, uh, try to sort of uh, find coalesce uh, uh, companies and talent and bring people together in order to achieve competitive lead. And it was always uh, convincing and even rousing at the point of launch, uh, but has in general been underwhelming and even counterproductive uh, in the outturn. Um, so those are the two ends of the spectrum, and they just haven't worked very well. And they haven't produced very good results in terms of productivity growth, which is what Lord Sainsbury's book is about. Um, so really the question is, what is the new wave that God, to use Gordon's phrase, what is the new wave 
when it comes to government involvement and coordination of innovation, growth, and inclusivity. What new forms of deregist policies uh, are likely to work best? What new forms of deregism can borrow from the lessons of the past and are suited to quite a new future that we now face? And the, the basic conclusion coming out of Lord Sainsbury's book, which actually reflects very much the strategies that we uh, have been pursuing in Singapore and trying to improve in Singapore, are, I think, twofold. First, focus on capabilities rather than specific technologies, firms, or products. Second, focus on ecosystems that speed up collective learning. Ecosystems such that the collective capability and the collective speed of learning exceeds that of the individual firms, including the most, uh, including the leading firms. So I think those are the two basic uh, uh, principles behind our strategy, and, and I think they are, they are principles that are fitted out for the world that we've, we've now entered as well. Focus on capabilities and focus on ecosystems. Um, and bear in mind that when we think of ecosystems, it's about both enabling breakthroughs, um, breakthroughs in basic science and, and, and new products, enable the, the fossil-free flops that come once in a long while. That was 1968, actually, Dick Fosbury in Mexico City. Um, and, you know, it was, it, was quite a, it was quite something at the time because for a century, there were only two techniques of doing the high jump, the scissors and the straddle. And you sort of ran at a slight angle to the bar and you eventually crossed it with, a, with, with your legs first and your body followed. And Dick Fosbury did something completely different. He ran in a semicircle before he reached the bar, and then he leapt backwards, head first. And he broke the record by six centimeters in one shot. But it's not just the Fosbury flops we want. It's what comes after. It's the diffusion of new techniques. It's that competition and collaboration to keep improving. And in the 20 years, if I'm not mistaken, after Dick Fosbury, maybe 15 years, the record went up by a further 15 centimeters. And, you know, that's, that's big when you think of the high jump. So you need both the breakthroughs as well as diffusion, continuous improvement, continuous challenging of each other. And that's what an ecosystem should try to achieve. And the lessons we learn from the past and many experiences are that it does require a coordinating role for government. Some funding strategies, but principally, I'd say, a government capacity that involves coordination. Not government knows it all, but don't just leave it to the market either. It involves a coordinating role. And to be very brief uh, in these opening remarks, uh, and all this comes through in, in Lord Sainsbury's book as well, uh, fundamental, of course, is a national system of education and training, and I don't need to elaborate on that, but I think one nice emphasis in your book, which matches very much what we do, is focusing on high-quality technical paths of education together with the academic path and allowing for some porosity and fluidity between the two. But importantly, and this is more important for the future than it has been in the last uh, uh, 20 or 30 years, we have to think hard about 
systems of lifelong learning and go well beyond the mantra of lifelong learning. Um, and the three points I'd, I'd like to make in that regard. First, we've got to think very hard about ordinary people when we think of lifelong learning. The, the top end white collar professionals, the knowledge professionals, they do lifelong learning on their own. It's a competitive game. But think hard about blue collar workers and ordinary white collar workers. And think about what lifelong learning means. It's not just about hobbies and sort of new pet interests. It's about continually building on skills, including very often building on what you already have and moving into adjacencies. Because industry churn is just not much more frequent now. Industry restructuring is much more frequent, but it doesn't mean abandoning what you've accumulated over 20 years and moving into a whole new area. It means very often moving into an adjacent skill. And that requires some coordination. It requires some curation of lifelong learning. And it's also a much more inclusive strategy for lifelong learning. Second point, the critical importance of broadband uh, as, as something that governments should do. Ensure that broadband is pervasive and it's affordable, including affordable for low-income households. And we're very much focused on that in Singapore. Uh, thirdly, uh, very different, uh, there has to be a certain agility in the whole system, both the national education systems as well as lifelong learning. A certain agility that allows us to move very quickly to develop the new skills that are emerging as important in the marketplace. If you take AI, for instance, there's a global shortage in AI, but there's great unevenness as well. Europe is well behind the United States. Uh, Britain is not bad, somewhere in between. Uh, Singapore is a very small country, but we are, we are uh, one of the leaders when it comes to AI scientific publications um, and young researchers, and we are trying to boost that pipeline. But you need a certain agility, and that agility again comes from coordination. So agility in sizing up the new skills of the future, including deep tech skills, and not just leaving it to the market, because the market takes a very long time to develop that on, on a sufficient scale. Developing the pipeline starting from universities and polytechnics and technical educational institutions even, and then being able to work with market participants to get market-relevant skills uh, ready as quickly as possible. So that's the first uh, realm of coordination that involves the government. The second realm uh, is translational vehicles. Vehicles that are able to translate IP, intellectual property, into market-ready devices, products, and services. Um, and there's, there's, there's two objectives here. One is that when you have those public-private translational vehicles, it accelerates transformation. It accelerates innovation. Uh, and it does it, importantly, through risk sharing between the private sector and the public sector. That risk sharing is critical. Um, if you leave it entirely to the market, you typically will get increasing concentration. And what happens is that the leaders become even more the leaders. And they very often buy out the emerging uh, challenges in order to snuff them out. But translational vehicles allow for a broader landscape of competition and innovation. And they involve, they allow for risk sharing that enables new players, especially, 
uh, to come up. And Mariana knows far more about this than, 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 than I do. Um, and, you know, we've learned a fair bit. There are ways in which the public sector can take some of the risk, share some of the upside uh, through royalties, uh, and enter into licensing arrangements, not just with the one player, but with a portfolio of players. And frankly, uh, the, the whole COVID uh, episode uh, has shown the, the strength and weaknesses of different systems of public-private partnership in this regard. Uh, in fact, we were quite fast off in Singapore when it came to um, uh, diagnostic test kits because we already had that infrastructure uh, of public sector research arms, licensing to commercial partners, and a, a range of commercial partners. So it turned out to be extremely valuable that we already had that practice and we could sort of get off the blocks quickly. Third point uh, that I do want to emphasize is that global supply chains are not out of fashion. And they're critical for innovation. They're critical for diffusion as well. Uh, we are not going back to the hyper-specialized, uh, hyper-globalized supply chains but the idea of having hubs of excellence around the world, not just labor cost arbitrage, but hubs of excellence in capabilities around the world, is still very much there. If you speak to any leading multinational, it's very much their strategy. And there is uh, an essential merit in it from a national point of view, which is not about markets. It's about speed of learning. If you stay plugged into global supply chains, you just learn faster. And I say that especially from the point of view of looking at the emerging world and the strategies that, that now have to be adopted, they've got to stay inserted in global supply chains. First, focus on global markets, including markets that are more advanced than yours, because buyer specifications in those markets tend to, be, tend to go beyond what you're already doing. So you're continually moving closer to the frontier. But second, if you look at high value production today in biologics or anything else, it's an intrinsically global business where there's competition and collaboration between Boston, Silicon Valley, Singapore, uh, some centers in Europe, places in the United Kingdom. It's constant collaboration and competition. And it's about capabilities that we can't all do entirely on, we can't each do entirely on our own. That's the nature of the business. It's quite different from the old Ricardian model of comparative advantage. Uh, it's, it involves players who are all roughly at the same level of labor costs, some cheaper than others, but that's not the key issue, but with distinct capabilities built up over time by their universities, their firms, and by their cluster strategies. And in this regard, I come to my final point, which is that we're going to think very hard about the future of SMEs. First, because of COVID, which threatens to shrink considerably uh, the base of SMEs across a whole range of economies. But second, because uh, SMEs need that additional uh, support by governments and that additional support from, from platforms that are public-private platforms in order to be able to globalize and stay inserted in global value chains. Digitization of supply chains is now accelerating and COVID is accelerating that more than anything else. End-to-end -end supply chain visibility, contactless supply chains, and so on. And there is a role for government in helping SMEs, and it's going to be quite critical. First, of course, in having the domestic digital infrastructure and, and utilities, but very importantly, digital cross-border connectivity. The big firms know what to do. 
The small firms critically need platforms that allow for this digital connectivity across borders, and they need G2G agreements as well, what we call digital economy agreements. The platforms are extremely important, and especially so for emerging markets, but I would say in general. Um, allowing SMEs to be, be part of a global ecosystem is critical. Uh, ecosystem of buyers, of sellers, of logistics providers, of, 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 of funding, including uh, fast financing, uh, escrow services, uh, other digital services. Um, and it can be done. There are matching engines that are being developed. In fact, we have something called Business Sans Borders, which we are developing, which involves matching ending engines for providers, buyers and sellers, financiers, logistics providers, uh, all connected to our SMEs. But very importantly, too, the most important forward edge when you talk about FTAs and um, trade agreements between countries are really digital agreements, digital economy agreements. We've started, we've already concluded digital economy agreements with New Zealand, with Australia, with Chile, like-minded partners, partners. We're talking to several others. It's critical. Recognizing digital identities, uh, uh, having commonly subscribed and recognized rules for data privacy, uh, having arrangements between customs authorities to allow for exchange of electronic trade documents. These are absolutely critical to SMEs in particular. It's otherwise a frictionful game and a very complicated game for them. And I think when we think about diffusion of productivity, which is a theme in Lord Samesbury's book, about that spread of productivity across a cluster and across firms large and small, uh, we do have to think very hard about how we can allow SMEs to be part of the global ecosystems of innovation, and it does require a role for government. So I'll stop there. I, I, found, I found it a very refreshing um, collection of knowledge, but also a way into the future uh, that, that your book provided, and it happens to match very much um, our strategies in Singapore. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tharman, and, and very uh, stimulating. And, and you also emphasized here the, the role of the emerging economy. So next speaker has also been pre-announced, uh, Mariana Mazzucato, has uh, really changed, I think, the way we think about the role of the state in, um, in development and in uh, promoting innovation in this industrial policy. Her book, The Entrepreneurial State, has had a tremendous impact and we are very delighted to have you here. You have started a new, very interesting think tank uh, research institute at UCL and um, I think you are making a, a difference. So please, Mariana, very nice to have you here. Okay. Thanks so much, Eric. And thank you, David, for your really illuminating insights and also your work over the years. I've always very much shared, uh, sorry, uh, enjoyed sharing the platform with you. I think we both worked in different ways with people like uh, Lord Willits and Vince Cable precisely when they were trying to uh, tackle a lot of the issues uh, that we're talking about here. But I sort of want to step back a bit and come back to the title, I think, of this session, which is Innovation and Inclusive Growth um, in the Time of COVID-19. Um, and what the lessons are of a lot of the issues we're talking about, but also the kind of reality on the ground. Why is it that we're not necessarily really uh, using this moment as an opportunity, not only to tackle the health pandemic, but really to make sure we don't go back to normality, given that normality is what has gotten us so many crises, the financial crisis, 
the climate crisis and now this health pandemic um, and how we can actually mix these two different areas, right? I think, unfortunately, we often have sessions where we either talk about innovation or we talk about really important social problems, whether it be around the health pandemic or bigger issues around the SDGs or topics like the welfare state. And I think what David's work and this conversation and the work of really ambitious uh, public servants and government leaders like Karman and Singapore as an example, uh, give us is really how can we, in, in tackling the world's biggest uh, problems, which I think are really well defined in the sustainable development goals, also fuel innovation-led growth? And how can we make sure that that's also inclusive growth? Um, anyway, so before I get to the COVID moment, I just wanted to reiterate some of the really important points that were made around the innovation side, because I want to kind of use them as pillars to think around COVID-19. So my work in the entrepreneurial state tried to um, really focus on why we need a different viewpoint of really what the state is for. Um, and I have shared some of these uh, thoughts in the past with David, and I think we agree on some of these points, but just really quickly, the first is this myth that the state is just there to fix markets, um, to fix market failures. So somehow the market is out there, and every now and then it messes up for different reasons, and so the state comes in to fix that market failure, whether it's because you have positive or negative externalities. And actually looking around the world precisely at countries like Singapore, but also, of course, at you know, Silicon Valley and that kind of innovation-led growth, what the state actually did there was co-create and co-shape markets alongside the private sector. It wasn't there just to fix. Because if you're fixing, by definition, you will always be late. <laughs> You'll actually have to wait for a problem to arise. Um, so really having that different view, which means a different economics framing around co-shaping and um, co-creating markets, I think is central. And that's actually why I set up this department at UCL. It's not just a think tank, it's a full-fledged department with an education program. So we're actually trying to, to uh, train civil servants globally to rethink their role and then ask, what does it mean if you're co-shaping markets and co-creating markets for how you design procurement policy or how you design grants and loans to really kind of crowd in bottom-up experimentation to, again, create new types of markets that don't actually already exist. And that really does mean actually investing along the whole innovation chain. It's not just about basic research. It's not just about applied research. It's really about thinking through the entire system and ecosystem, but literally the innovation chain and what is the role of the public sector along the whole way. So basic research, applied research, those fundamental linkages between the two, but also patient long-term finance downstream. We often talk about venture capital, but the truth is that a lot of venture capital funding is very impatient. It's you know, very exit-driven. The exits you know, through an IPO or a buyout have to happen in three or five years, sometimes longer, but still just the fact that it's exit-driven means that some sectors like biotechnology, and I would argue today space technology and clean technology are being rushed. So you end up, for example, as we did with the biotech sector with lots of clepos, it sounds like a disease, productless IPOs, just because there was so much rush to exit. And people like Gary Pisano have written about this. Um, he wrote a book called Science is Not a Business. Uh, in other words, what happens to science and innovation when it's rushed too much through that kind of impatient finance. But also even further downstream demand, you know, my uh, colleague, Carlota Perez, who's an honorary professor in our institute, uh, has often written about the fact that just because you have innovation, that doesn't mean it will really diffuse 
and get fully deployed throughout an economy. And she points to, for example, the era of mass production and says that without suburbanization, which was a demand side policy, you wouldn't have had that full um, deployment and diffusion of that general purpose technology. And I would argue that today green is precisely that kind of demand side uh, policy that we need in order for even the ICT revolution, which hasn't been fully deployed or diffused to really uh, have its, you know, economy-wide impact. And, you know, Tarman's point about this isn't about picking winners. Let's, you know, be um, honest here. Often the problem is not picking winners, is that the losers pick you (laughs) uh, in government. And so really redesigning, again, procurement, grants, and loans in order to allow those who are willing in the private sector to engage with the public sector around some of its big missions, whether that be the mission to go to the moon, which required lots of private sector activity, not just public sector, but also some of the really important missions of today, whether it's around the future of mobility, healthy aging, clean growth. Um, The other thing about, you know, that was mentioned by both David and Tarman, this issue about is it about sectors or not? I think sometimes that's a false problem. To tackle any of the problems, again, that are underneath the SDGs, you need all sectors. And so the real question is, how can we also frame industrial strategy itself as, um, you know, government actually choosing really important problems and then redesigning the industrial strategy, the innovation policy, the demand side policies, again, to fuel that bottom experimentation to find solutions towards those problems. And I've framed this with my work with the European Commission in terms of mission-oriented policies. I was very happy that Greg Clark asked me to, he was the minister in Bayes, asked me to help the UK government um, implement a mission-oriented, challenge-led view of industrial strategy. But really, I mean, if you think of the problems around the future of mobility, you could think about 20 different sectors which would have to transform in order to actually think through a properly, like really interesting mobility strategy, but same thing with aging. So the digital sector, for example, would be critical to any uh, mission we have today. But lastly, and I think this point that Tarman was also raising, we need dynamic public administration. This isn't just about innovation through government, it's innovation within government. And it's really interesting here to look globally at organizations like in Denmark, they have Mind Lab or Citra in Finland that really for a long time thought through what does it mean for the public sector itself to see itself as a value creator, a value co-creator alongside the private sector. What does it mean for thinking out of the box, for being flexible and adaptive? And again, that's why I've set up this uh, department, which is I really think that lots of the key questions that businesses have asked themselves, like how to make sure that you don't get too inertial and too bureaucratic when you get too big. This was a big question uh, 30 years ago. So you had the multi-divisional company. You know, those same questions should be asked within the public sector precisely because it's a value co-creator. If instead you're just there fixing markets, there's no real reason to ask yourself what are the new skills and capabilities, the dynamic capabilities of the public sector itself in order for it to be co-shaping markets. And I just think this is all really, really important right now with COVID. I do think, you know, this is an opportunity where trillions are being poured into the system by states globally. And unless this money is directed in a particular way, then we're just going to fuel sort of the next uh, wave of problems. And so again, having a recovery that it's directed towards building back better, you know, that needs to actually have a pretty concrete recipe. It's not just going to happen by saying building back better. And I just want to say three quick things that I think can help us get 
a better economy, not just one that is recovering from crisis to crisis. One is this concept around mission-oriented policies. I do think we need to remember right now that in, in, in January and February, we weren't clapping healthcare workers, but flood workers in Venice, firefighters in Australia and California, and really thinking through how the Green Deal, which was really high on the agenda globally before we got into this pandemic, has to be there in terms of how we actually structure these trillions uh, of pounds, euros, and dollars that are going into the economy. And one of the ways to do that is precisely through these new public-private partnerships, because that's what it is, right? When you put in all this money, whether it's for a bailout or loans or subsidies that are going to industries that are you know, having a really hard time, and rightly so, need support, there are ways to actually create conditionalities so you get transformation. And I think that here it was quite interesting. In France, Macron was quite clear with this. He said, uh, we're not here to save industry, but to transform it. And so the support that, for example, Renault, the car manufacturer got, but also Air France, was conditional on those sectors, those industries, those companies reducing their carbon emissions over the next years. And, the, and you know, that was embedded in the contract. Uh, similarly, in Denmark, uh, those companies that have been excessively using tax havens will not be eligible for bailouts. Again, that's very important for redesigning and transforming our economy that so it's more creative and less extractive but you know in the UK for example we gave 600 million I think it was of liquidity to um, EasyJet <laughs> um, with no conditions attached and this was a company that just um, some months before had paid I think it was 174 million in dividends uh, out in a period in which it actually you know could have been actually reinvesting those funds precisely to make sure it was not just more resilient, but also the airlines themselves, which have been very hard hit during this crisis. There's no reason that the support that's being provided to them shouldn't be, again, conditional on airlines actually becoming cleaner, greener, more sustainable. Um, and lastly, just in terms of this race for the vaccine, we all know that's incredibly important, but this would be a really, really good sandbox, <laughs> uh, nice term, to actually structure stakeholder capitalism in a better way. So as we know, or as as some of us know, uh, the health sector has not necessarily been the most symbiotic and mutualistic in terms of how the public and private have worked together. In the US, for example, the state, the government puts in 40 billion a year in health innovation, but then the prices of the medicines or the structure of the patent system don't actually reflect that co-creation, that co-investment. And so coming back to Tarman's point about socializing, not just risks, but also rewards, that can be done not only through royalty or equity schemes that I've also written about, but also in terms of how we govern the innovation process itself. So the World Health Organization has talked about making sure that we actually pool the patents for the vaccine to really foster collective intelligence. Patents are often abused. They're too wide. They're too strong. They're too upstream. Let's re kind of, you know, think through how to govern the innovation system in health in this health pandemic in such a way that we actually innovate in the public interest. Um, Gilead has put out a drug called remdesivir, which received actually $70 million by the U.S. government, but somehow the price of this drug right now in the U.S. is not reflecting that public contribution. It costs $3,200 per dosage. <laughs> um, so again, how can we make sure that the prices of the products, the patent system, the structure of the public-private partnerships in an era that absolutely requires lots of innovation is actually structured to reach also public good interest tests as opposed to just thinking it's, it's fine just to put in a lot of public money and somehow it's going to uh, you know, um, serve all. So I'll stop there.
And actually, just one last thing on state capacity, because Tarman mentioned it. I, I do encourage people to look at just the diversity of different ways in which countries have reacted to the crisis in terms of their public administration. And besides Singapore, you know, both Kerala and India, uh, Vietnam, and that wasn't chance. They had actually invested a lot in their state capacity over the years. And that definitely was then reflected in how they were able to uh, structure the recovery. And it was quite interesting how then the UK has had to over-rely on consulting companies like Deloitte or Circo and G4S. And I think this is a bit of a um, result of actually not investing enough in public sector capacity over the years. And so there's nothing wrong with outsourcing in general, but we really need to be building public sector capabilities precisely to be able to manage um, crises, but also more general, continuous ways to govern an economy to be innovation-driven, inclusive, and sustainable. Thank you. Thank you, Mariana. Thank you for coming to the very important topic of state capacity at the end. I think it's something we should come back to in, in the discussion. Uh, so last but not least, we have our own LSE professor, Ricardo Crescenzi, from the Department of Geography and the Environment. He's, as Gordon Brown said, one of our rising stars with a very original perspective on innovation, technology, and economic growth, and most recently has been focusing on innovation clusters, particularly in emerging economies. Ricardo, we're absolutely delighted to have you here. Please, the floor is yours. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. I uh, truly enjoyed uh, the conversation this afternoon, and I would like to uh, bring in a slightly like, different perspective, linking back to the idea of leveling up and discussing from the perspective of left-behind places. Uh, lots of the, many of the examples, very important examples that have been mentioned make reference to the Silicon Valley or to Denmark, Sweden, uh, a little bit of the usual suspects in terms of state capacity, public intervention, et cetera, et cetera. So what I would like to like recall and, and, and briefly discuss with you is the perspective of places where civil servants might uh, not even have uh, elementary education, uh, places like uh, East Romania or uh, if you think about uh, my own uh, country of origin, Italy, in southern Italy, if you travel, uh, in particular now during the crisis in southern Italy, you can see uh, the desperation of many areas that really don't know how uh, to react uh, to uh, the, the crisis triggered by uh, uh, COVID-19. Um, so I, 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 the, the perspective that I would like to bring in is the perspective of innovation, but not innovation that comes from absorption, but really innovation from within uh, that involves many of these areas where most of the uh, 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 winners, where most of the examples, most of the policies, most of the tools <clears throat> discussed uh, with reference to the big, uh, big winners uh, uh, do not apply or apply in, in very different, in very different manners. Um, if we look uh, at some very simple data on uh, regions, on cities, on uh, uh, local economies that move, that change their position in the global distribution of innovation, you very clearly see from the 1970s until, uh, until today that there is a very significant sort of like middle innovation trap, whereby places, that there are some very successful examples that we do discuss at length, but we do have many places that were at the top in the 1970s and still are at the top, and many other places that were at the bottom of the global distribution of innovation and are still stuck there. So the big problem, and what I would like to discuss is what works for these places? What are the policies that work in practice? 
uh, in these places. I think COVID-19 has triggered uh, a, a window of opportunity uh, for some of these places. Uh, let me mention just uh, uh, three examples. The first is work from home. So work from home, uh, uh, when thinking about the lockdown and the fact that people needed to work from home, has triggered uh, major organizational and technological changes, even in small and medium-sized firms that needed to react in some way to keep going. Um, and, and these involved firms and large firms located in the strong areas, but also firms uh, located in the so-called left-behind places. So there were window opportunities, but when we looked at the hard data on work from home in firms, we do see that some firms have been more successful than others. Think about also innovation triggered by COVID-19 when we think about the uh, creation of products that were needed uh, to deal with the immediate uh, uh, needs uh, uh, for people uh, ill with COVID-19. Uh, a typical example are firms that converted snorkeling masks into ventilators, for example, in Lombardy, one of the most adversely affected areas uh, in, in, in Europe by COVID-19. Uh, they did so uh, mostly uh, small uh, and medium-sized firms, uh, and they did this very successfully. In uh, a, a few days, in a few weeks, they have been able to deliver these life-saving uh, um, equipments. And the same, a similar example can come from the global race for the development of a vaccine. The Oxford vaccine is done in partnership with a firm that is located in Pomezia, south of Rome, one of the former objective two areas, one of the uh, 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 areas facing industrial decline in Europe. So when we think about like what these examples have in common, they have in common internationalization. They have in common the fact that they were possible because of global connectivity that allowed uh, firms to learn and to develop the technological capabilities that were needed to respond to the crisis. And they had, when these cases were successful, uh, supportive ecosystems that made these transitions possible. The problem, the fundamental problem, is that COVID-19 is impacting the what I would call these two key enablers. So in global spread of knowledge and supportive ecosystems. Because if we look at globalization, globalization in a certain sense at the moment is being called into question. We need to reinforce the importance of global value chains, global supply chains. This is, it was a very important point, but it's, it cannot be given for granted. So this internationalization is being called into question in many, uh, in many ways. And I think in the UK, we know a lot about this on the one end. On the other hand, there are shifting priorities in terms of uh, uh, public, public expenditure that also undermines the functioning of local supportive ecosystems. So COVID-19 has created potential opportunities for firms uh, in many places outside the usual suspects, but it's also at the same time, because of its economic consequences, undermining the enablers the undermining the forces that can allow firms to catch up and exploit the, this window of opportunities. And my, uh, the, 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 the example that I would like to discuss with you very briefly comes from the EU recovery package. Um, let me share with you uh, uh, just uh, a couple of, uh, of, of, of slides um, in this regard. So when we think about uh, uh, the EU recovery plan, I mean, you might... Uh, be familiar with that the, the European Commission has put 
uh, on the table a substantial amount of resources in terms of the new recovery instruments and the reinforcement of the long-term budget, EU budget for 2021-2027. So it's a significant amount of resources. So again, Europe is a very interesting laboratory for both advanced and emerging economies. The key problem is that we don't know what works. We don't know what works in practice, what tools uh, we can use from in order to trigger the enablers that I mentioned before, because we are putting, we, we are facing uh, unprecedented challenges. And so we have very limited knowledge beyond grand schemes on what should be done. We have very limited knowledge on what works in practice. So what we need is a little bit of like back of the envelope calculations, looking at what the EU has done already with its funds to try and see, okay, what might work, what in principle might work in order to trigger a short-term response uh, to uh, COVID-19. So we looked at projects that the EU has implemented already in the previous programming period that are very similar to those that countries are putting on the table using the recovery fund. And there are three key points that we'd like to make. The first is, the first question is, okay, what works now? What is more likely to deliver impacts in the short run as a response to COVID-19? Here, what we did is basically searching for projects that look very much like those that will be part of the recovery plan. And we see how many of those projects implemented in 2020, implemented in the 2014-2020 period have been actually completed. So if you look in the health sector, so EU money that went in the health sector, only 8.1% of the projects have been actually completed. In the public administration, 10.6. Projects that target firms, less than 30%. So the total projects, the, the average for the projects that look like those that we are going to put on the table that have been completed. So I'm not discussing were they successful or not, but have they been, have they completed? Have, have we been able to implement the policies? It's only 35%. And we are at the end of the programming period. So the key question is, we know very little and we are, we, we are running a big, big risk to put on the table tools that only work in the best places, that only work in the best practice example, but might take years to be actually implemented on the ground in the less developed places in Europe and outside. Where? In what areas? So we looked at the geography of these programs. This is the case of Italy, where uh, all expenditure data are available, strangely enough. And you can see that basically most of the COVID recovery style projects that have been completed are in the north of Italy. So in the most advanced regions uh, of, um, of Italy. So we have a problem of what works now, where if it only works in the core, if it only works in London, then the leveling, the all leveling up idea is finished. And for whom? If we look at the beneficiaries, the people who receive, who are more likely to receive funds by schemes that are designed along those lines are likely to be older. So the, the average age of people in receipt of funds of the next generation EU type is higher than the average and only 27% are female. So the problem is for whom? When we put the tools on the table, for whom are they going to work? So we need to ask these questions with a very practical approach. We have plenty of experience to learn from. And so public policies, the public policies that we put on the table 
should be based on, on solid evidence. We have learned from, we should have learned the lessons from the pandemic when someone was discussing about herd immunity. So we know how important uh, a solid evidence on what works is. So what I propose is a WWW test. So if with the policies that we put on the table based on the evidence only work in the long run or only work for the winners in the big places, in the usual suspects, then we are in trouble. So in my view, the debate is not really ideological, but it's really about a very concrete approach on what we know works in practice, where we should start with small-scale experimentation of context-specific solutions. Uh, we cannot parachute successful examples in places where they are completely disconnected from the context. When we look at, and, and I, I'm closing with this, um, and, and we studied in that uh, voting pattern behaviors, we know that bad policies, policies that are ineffective, are much worse than inaction. So when it comes to the ballots and people voting for populistic options or voting for disintegration, economic disintegration, having ineffective policies uh, 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 is much worse in terms of electoral return uh, than having uh, uh, no policies. So in, in the, the key message is that we cannot really afford to fail or populism uh, will be the true long-run legacy of COVID-19. So to reduce the risk of failure, we really need to base our choices and the tools that we put on the table on solid evidence. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ricardo, for this plea for evidence and, and for making uh, focusing on the actual implementation. Uh, uh, very, very important. We are, of course, running quite late now, but we, we wanted to do... Uh, uh, a quick poll. We have uh, two students, Karina uh, uh, Rodriguez and Trudin Tao. They're going to ask the audience um, a couple of questions and, and then uh, some questions for the, for the speakers too. Karina, or Jin Tao, you start. Yeah, thank you. I can start. So, uh, so the first pair of questions we have is regarding growth and innovation. So the first question is, for how long do you think that COVID-19 will affect global growth? And the second question we have is, uh, will COVID-19 speed up or slow down innovation? Yeah, I'll give you five more seconds. I see a lot of people are voting, so I'll give you another five more seconds. <laughs> okay, I think we'll stop here. So let me share the results. So based on our attendees, uh, most people believe that the COVID-19 will affect global growth uh, for five years, I think. And for second question, okay, majority of people think uh, COVID-19 will speed up the innovation. Uh, yes, so we also have two questions on, um, on growth and innovation. Okay, we have two questions on inequalities. The first question is, will COVID-19 increase inequalities within countries? And the second question is, will COVID-19 increase inequalities across countries? So we, we, the first question is about inequality um, between different regions in the same country. And the second one is inequalities uh, between countries. No? So I'll give you also a few seconds to answer this question. So we share the results and we see that in both cases, um, People strongly believe that the, the COVID situation will increase inequalities, both within countries and across countries. 
So thank you very much. I think you, you, there are some positive news here and some bad news, but uh, we'll live with this for a long time and we'll have major impact on inequalities within countries and across countries. But the good news is, I guess, that COVID-19 is going to be good for, for innovation. So uh, did you have some a question for the speakers too? Uh, yes. Yeah, so thank you all the uh, panelists for your uh, insightful sharing. As my question is, I think there are many aspects that need reforms and innovation. However, if I ask, uh, if I ask you to mention one area which needs immediate attention when the COVID window is still open, so which area will you choose? I think this can be global level or specific for a country. We we collect some questions here. I'm going to go to the audience too. Karina, did you have a question as well? Yes, uh, thank you so much for such an, an interesting discussion. Um, one of the topics that several of the speakers touched upon was, was the importance of coordination for innovation. Um, and in this coordination, in, not only between the government and the academia and the government and the private sector, but also coordination uh, within the government and across, this, across several sectors within the government. So my question um, in this context is, what are some specific strategies that you think the government can implement or what tools can the government use to ensure that this coordination is more fluid? Okay, we should say that Karina is a student in the uh, Master of Public Administration at the School of Public Policy and Jin Tao is in the um, undergraduate program, the PPE program of LSE, our only four-year program. Uh, we have a lot of questions, uh, in fact, uh, 55, 56 of them. And the most popular question, and, and, uh, and or the one seems to be most urgent, is this tension between climate and growth. And uh, I think Mariana is probably the one who was spoke about it, most sort of related her remarks to that. There is this contradiction that's often emphasize that you know growth um, is not good for the environment and and but could i ask you to comment on is this a really a um, a contradiction or or are they um, could you think of innovation as a way to actually address the envi environmental concerns is this um, fear of uh, growth uh, undermining long term uh, survival at, on, on Earth. I think that is clearly the question that is on uh, a lot of our um, listeners or, or the audience in mind. So um, can I ask you, maybe, uh, Mariana, do you want, since you touched on, can you want to say a word or two of, on, maybe on the last issue in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think it all depends on on how we are structuring the policies, on whether they become uh, an opportunity and resolve these two potential tensions. So if you speak to uh, businesses, you know, why do you invest in an area? They will say, well, depends which businesses, but the ones I've spoken to and also investors, that they invest when they see an opportunity, right? So this is a really important insight because often we have too many tax incentives. We think that business already wants to invest and you just make it easier. And somehow there will be more investment, whether it's an R&D or also in areas perhaps that pollute less. And so I think one of the roles of government policy in many different areas, but definitely in the climate area, is also to you know, affect the expectations that businesses, but also citizens and, and nonprofit uh, 
groups have on where the future opportunities lie for growth. And so that's precisely why having these policies, which I call, again, mission-oriented, that are very positive and, and reimagining how we want to live in our cities, for example, that can open up all sorts of waves of innovation and investment. And in a country like the UK, which has a below average investment, not just in R&D, but also just investment as a share of GDP, what you really want to do is not increase just profits in an area, but increase that, again, re, you know, reinvestment cycle. And so, you know, that's really important. But also, if you do that in such a way that also creates new services and new sectors, that also helps precisely, as, as we were talking about before, say, the SME population. So Denmark, just a quick example, Denmark today is the number one provider of high-tech green services to China's green economy. And China's spending $1.7 trillion <laughs> to, you know, render more sustainable all its manufacturing sector, including energy-friendly technologies. And a small little country <laughs> is servicing that. Um, and that didn't come out of just startup policy or SME policy. It actually came out of really ambitious policies, for example, at the city level around sustainable Copenhagen, et cetera. And so I think it's always that mix between kind of opportunity generating policies, but then also very concrete instruments that can increase the additionality, meaning creating investments that, you know, that wouldn't have happened anyway that can really mean that we both solve a huge challenge climate while also fostering growth of small companies, innovation and productivity. But it depends how we formulate those tools and, and, and structures. And if you just quickly on Jin Tao's question, what is the most urgent measure in the COVID window, as he spoke, as he said, for, to promote innovation? I mean, personally, I just think if we don't really rethink our welfare state <laughs> and specifically global health systems, it's going to be the biggest lost opportunity. I mean, the, the great but terrible thing about COVID is we're all just as healthy as our neighbor is on our street, in our city, in our country, and globally. Had this epidemic begun in a country that had a weaker health system than China, we would all be much worse off, right? So how do we not just invest in the health system, but also make it really dynamic? So the fact that so many deaths happen in care homes, I think something like 80% of deaths in the US happen in US care homes. If you look at the structure of care homes, both in the US and the UK, they're really weak. These are not innovation centers. They have almost no technical scientific capacity. They are not knowledge institutions. So how to have a, a distributed, decentralized, healthy, innovative, sustainable welfare state, whether we're talking about public health, public education, public transport, I think is essential. And COVID you know, really makes us wake up to how important this is, at least in our health system. So again, bringing the welfare state and the innovation state together, I think is critical. Eric, uh, I, I agree on uh, what Mariana's saying. Uh, the greatest failure, I think, in this crisis has been the failure of international coordination. Countries have not been able to exchange information. They've not been able to work together, both for the economy and health in the way they should. But I want to bring it back to the, the initial question that was being, being, being posed. We're, we're seeing a turnaround in economics, the relationship between inflation and employment, uh, what constitutes fiscal uh, rectitude and fiscal activism, uh, but we're also seeing a big change in the way we see industrial policy. And I think that what all of you have done today is show that we have to explain to people what a modern industrial policy looks like. And I would like to ask particularly David and uh, Thurnham to explain how they would say to policymakers, and Mary Marianne and, and, and Ricardo can add to that, 
what they would say is what is the change from people thinking that industrial policy is picking winners, it's subsidizing companies, it's nationalizing companies, to all the new terminology that I was hearing, where you, um, if you socialize risk, you don't privatize rewards, uh, where you have translational vehicles, you have digital platforms. Uh, and I think this is the way we've got to think about capabilities and about problem solving, particularly the big problems as we move forward. So, so David and Thurnham, to start with, how would you explain industrial policy uh, to both civil servants and the public about what is now needed and what are the priorities? Okay, shall, I, shall I pick that up? Yeah, please do. Uh, uh, I think what I would say is what drives innovation and growth is what I've called a capabilities uh, market opportunity dynamic. It's where firms can see an opportunity and have the capabilities uh, to take advantage of it. Um, and I think a role that government has is both making certain uh, that those opportunities exist, and that's about R&D and in, uh, innovation policy, but it's also about supporting the capabilities of firms, uh, mainly, of course, through things like education and training, uh, but also things like broadband and, and so on. So it's operating on both opportunities and capabilities, and then critically making certain that that just doesn't happen in one part of the country, but happens across the country uh, in all regions. So they all have opportunities uh, to use their capabilities uh, to, to take advantage of opportunities and in that way grow the economy. And that, of course, is very different from any kind of industrial policy which is based on uh, directing the economy in some way and equally it's different from saying no, no it's nothing to do with us government keeps out of it Darman. well um just to follow on from what david said um i would say there are three um uh angles uh to uh, this new industrial policy. You. Oh, sorry. Am I? Am I? Can you hear me now? Are you fine? Okay. So I think there are three. Um, your your internet connection is a bit. Oh, I see. It's not very clear. Is it? Okay. Can you hear me clearly now? Well, let let me carry on. So I think there are three dimensions to um, uh, this uh, new industrial policy. Uh, first. Uh, we've got to think about both uh, the firms and the talent that pushes out the frontier, as well as diffusion across the whole spectrum of firms and in the labor force. Diffusion of new skills, new techniques. Uh, and some governments focus very well on the frontiers um, and don't have specific to ensure that there's a quick spread of learning uh, across the whole spectrum of firms and individuals. So that's a, a fundamental one, one issue. Uh, a second issue I would say that's important is when we think of technological change, you know, both Gordon and uh, David spoke about the phenomenon of how uh, some of the most dynamic industries, the industries that are moving up the value curve, shed workers who end up in low-cost routine jobs. It's, in a sense, uh, an inversion of what economic development used to be about. 
for those of us who sort of studied economics, um, uh, Arthur Lewis and others spoke about economic development as a continuous process of manpower moving from one industry to another that was higher productivity. So they moved out of agriculture into manufacturing and certain urban activities which were higher productivity. And agriculture itself became higher productivity as people moved out. So it is a continuous S-curve of uh, moving people into higher and higher levels of productivity. Now we get a reverse Lewisian movement where the most dynamic sectors are shedding workers not to move into higher productivity activities, but into lower productivity activities, which are typically low-end service jobs. And I think we have to arrest that phenomenon. And there are two ways of doing it. First, when we think of technological change and the role of government policies, we have to place particular emphasis on technologies that augment human labor and enhance the productivity of human labor. So not just robots that displace uh, uh, people who then have to find another sector to move to, but also augmented reality, uh, uh, other technologies that actually enhance the ability of technicians and blue-collar workers in being able to monitor and control precision engineering processes. So how do you upgrade, when you talk about skills biased technological change, to use the economist phrase, skills biased technolo technological change mustn't just mean favoring the ones with the higher skills, but it must mean improving everyone's skills together with the technological upgrading or transformation of the firm. Um, and I think we have to think hard about how we focus on those types of strategies. At the same time, there will be, of course, manpower that's shed from one industry and needs to move to another. And there we need active labor market policies that help to put people into jobs that make the best use of their previous skills. Don't just leave it to the market. It means curating programs of learning that look at what a person has been doing previously, what skills are embedded in their experience, and build on it. Uh, and that, that, again, requires coordination, and it's public-private sector coordination and critically, of course, involving educational providers. So we need to do those two things at the same time, making sure that as you transform industries as much as possible, you're also transforming the skills of people who are already there. And second, inevitably, because you will still have some manpower moving out of industries that are upgrading, you've got to find a way in which they're not just left to fend for themselves in the market, because they'll often end up in lower-end jobs, but find ways in which you are able to augment their skills and find new industries they can move into. And that, to my mind, is now the central business of government anywhere in the world. Ricardo, can you um, take this kind of reasoning also to your issue of how do you get left behind areas to climb and how, how do you see that strategy applied to that problem? Yeah, I, I think it applies particularly to left behind places in thinking about labor market policies to make sure that skills can be reused or upgraded and updated is crucially important. In particular, when you think in, uh, in, in upgrading along uh, value chains uh, perspective. Um, I think when discussing about inclusive growth and uh, COVID-19, 
it also becomes crucial to think about what might pay off in the short run, because we are dealing with the crisis right now. And I think there, for less developed places, less innovative places, more than inventing uh, uh, new markets or creating completely new technological infrastructure, it does make sense uh, to invest in uh, existing sources of uh, competitive advantage of these places that might be in more traditional sectors or in more traditional activities. Think about the food industry, think about how uh, food, the food industry can be made uh, more sustainable, for example, by being cross-fertilized with advanced chemistry, biotechnology, etc., etc. So it's not necessarily going the high-tech way that we will be able to find the solution for uh, less advanced places, but it is very much about innovation from within uh, existing sectors where innovation might take very different forms from what we are used to uh, in the most advanced places. Well, thank you very much. I think we have already run over time and I have been uh, terrible at disciplining uh, the speakers. I haven't had much time as I would have liked for, for uh, questions. We had a very large number of questions. We will do the following. We'll um, connect the We'll collect the questions and then send them also to the speakers and hopefully we can establish some um, uh, connections and, and, and stimulating. So I think we have had a, a very interesting uh, d discussion. We had uh, a, we spoken you know, about the factors that shaped our ability to to innovate and generate long-term growth, we can do it in an inclusive way. We have touched on the role of the state and we read for a new type of industrial policy, one that is supporting uh, innovation, but it also helps, helps spread the benefits of, of innovation across the economy and also to areas that are not uh, immediately involved in, in these processes. So these left behind areas that Ricardo has spoken about. Lord Sainsbury's book is about the importance of exploiting windows of opportunity and COVID-19, despite all its devastating impact on lives and livelihoods, offer an opportunity and, and there have been a number of suggestions and maybe um, uh, Mariana's uh, emphasis on uh, improving our welfare state. It's not a small task, but it, it, it does teach us something about what is required in a modern welfare state and how to make us more resilient um, to um, uh, these kind of uh, global emergencies. So thank you very much for this very interesting discussion. Thank you for uh, contributing so much and thank you to all the audience and thank you to the students for uh, the polling and for asking the questions. So thank you again and um, uh, be safe. Thank you. <laughs>